How about Dooley? Oh, that's a good one. I want to do anyway we go. Welcome to the Rob is Right podcast, and we have a new series that we are going to be launching called the Warsaw Chronicles with Rob Smith, as always. And so we're just going to be looking at what life was like in Warsaw, Virginia, when Rob was a boy. So, Rob, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Stu. I think the younger generation could learn a thing or two about the way the world was and how it doesn't have to be exactly the way it is now. Absolutely. So for people who aren't familiar with Warsaw, could you just kind of give us a one sentence description? (laughs) Small town in the northern neck of Virginia. And if you don't mind me being a little bit more loquacious, um, it is, was originally Richmond County Courthouse. Um, It is um, very old part of really the new world in the sense that um, there were people settled in Warsaw or that area before uh, the Puritans got to Plymouth Rock. Um, much of the land there was land grant from the King of England. Um, anyway, um, it had its golden age, uh, before the revolution because of tobacco, it was probably the wealthiest part of the new world at that time. Um, there's still a lot of remnants of kind of old baronial houses, um, that were part of that culture. Um, but after the revolution, that area really declined. And then after the heat and Yankees came and destroyed everything, it declined even more. But the name Warsaw, you probably know about this. Um, I think it's interesting that a little teeny town decided to change its name from Richmond County Courthouse uh, to Warsaw in 1831 in sympathy with the Polish people who had an uprising against the czars. Yeah, yeah, definitely a lot I want to respond to. Uh, I'll respond to the Russian-Polish situation first. So, yes. uh, So, essentially, the Battle of Warsaw was seen as something that was very sympathetic, as, you know, it's almost comparable to the death of William Wallace as something that would stoke the desire for independence. Uh, There was a previous battle, and... Praga, where they were essentially massacred. So Warsaw, Poland was evacuated to essentially prevent that from happening. But whenever you evacuate a major city like that, everyone is losing their home, you know? So, you know, death is death, but, you know, being sent off into greater Poland, fleeing for your life, you know, that's all kinds of trauma and sadness associated with that. So I can definitely see how anyone would be sympathetic to that but uh last christmas i got dad a map of lord chesterfield's land grant which essentially had the northern neck when it was given over to 
Lord Chesterfield. And, you know, so way before Warsaw was is back when it was Richmond County. But the cool thing about that whole area is that um, one of these environmental guys I like who hunts, Steve Rinello, he describes that whole area of the Chesapeake Bay as you'd have to be an idiot to starve there because you have so many options, whether it's from the sea or from the land for just good, good food. <laughs> well, it's an interesting area for sure. Um, a lot of the old land grant families are still there. That's one thing that's very anachronistic about uh, Richmond County is there are people who have lived on the same patch of land for 300, 350 years easy. Um, so. well, I know that, I believe it's Arthur Carver III, you know, his, his grandfather developed Northern Neck ginger ale. So not the same as, you know, the, the Mount Airy family, but, you know, even with something like that, that, that family, you know, up until Coca-Cola suspended Northern Neck, you know, is still bottling and canning Northern Neck ginger ale or was. <laughs> yeah, they, they were, they sold it. They sold the recipe to Coca-Cola a few years back. Now, some interesting things about Warsaw, and you probably didn't know, Stu, but did you know that Jesus was born there? <laughs> I didn't know. I, I did yeah, not know yeah. that. Yeah, he was. And did you know that John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus in the Rappahannock River? Uh, I would imagine maybe the, was it the Catskill Creek would be a better pick? Oh, Cat Point Creek. It's Cat right Point kind Creek. of at the mouth of Cat Point and, <laughs> and Rappahannock. And did you know that the oxygen factory in Warsaw produces all the oxygen for the whole earth? Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Unknown facts. Well, I, I did kind of look into the history of famous people from Warsaw and someone named William Atkinson Jones popped up. And so apparently he's a massive celebrity in the Philippines because he helped essentially give them their independence. Yeah, he was a congressman from Warsaw and he wrote the bill that um, um, that gave the Philippines their independence. And he also sponsored the Jones Act, which had to do with merchant uh, marines. At our little Episcopal church in Warsaw, there's a big, big statue dedicated to Mr. Jones and it was dedicated by the Filipino people out of appreciation. So. Which I think is another just kind of sweet sentiment where you almost see Warsaw as being a very international town where <laughs> the Philippines loves Warsaw. Uh, Everybody loves Jesus yeah. loves Warsaw, John the Baptist, you know, uh, Charlemagne, he was a big Warsaw guy. Um, uh, another person, few people know this, but Tom Robbins, the author, was from Warsaw. And I know he spoke very highly of relish as kind of being a true staple of what Southern cuisine should look like. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Uh, for the audience, you might tell them that relish is my niece, Carol Mead's restaurant in Warsaw. Yes. And uh, um, it's in my view, one of the more famous people, um, Landon Carter who was responsible for um, writing um, the colonial's response to the Stamp Act um, was from Warsaw, from Richmond County. 
uh, Cyrus Griffin, who was the author, uh, who was the first president of the Continental Congress, was from Richmond County. Um, a number of signers of declaration of the Declaration of Independence were from outside of Warsaw. And of course, George Washington, Monroe and Madison were all um, just over the county line in Westmoreland. So uh, quite the patriotic fervor existed in the 1770s there. There was an Englishman, his name was Stitchley. And he wrote in 1750 that the Northern Neck was the Athens of the New World. And he wrote that because at that time, tobacco was like growing cash. And the Northern Neck, for those who don't know about it, it's um, in the upper Chesapeake Bay between the Potomac and the Rappahannock Rivers. And there are all sorts of creeks and rivers and tributaries that run through there. So it was ideal for growing tobacco and because of the shipping lanes, it could get to England and Scotland relatively easy. So the planters built these baronial estates all up and down these creeks. Um, many have fallen into ruin, but a lot of them are still there. Um, even though I would say for the longest period of time, you know, after the Civil War, it was pretty poor. Uh, it's starting to see somewhat of a renaissance now, but anyway. And something about, you know, the being poor was interesting to see. I have started to follow the Northern Neck of, of Virginia Historical Society page on Facebook. Uh, they put out some really just awesome content. And it was the picture of the schoolhouse back in 1912. So all the kids are dressed up in what I imagine is their Sunday best, but no one has shoes on. And you can see that the boys have so much pride for their baseball bats. So there's a group of four boys that have these very skinny baseball bats that they're holding, like almost like they're in the military and it's like a gun, at, but they're holding them with such pride. But you can tell that, you know, all the kids are, growing too fast or too poor to have shoes. So investing in shoes isn't even an option. I saw that picture you sent me as well. Um, yeah, I noticed that as well. They all have like um, coats and ties and knickers and things, but no shoes. It is interesting that this area was so wealthy before the, the revolution and then it became so poor. Um, and, but, it, but they are the same families. Um, um, so it's been through, one could say it's been through a lot. So I know that there's a school picture of you from back in the day, and you still get that same kind of phenomenon where, you know, they're going to be, the class is going to be all over the place for wealth, but everyone, Matt, it's matters so much to present well and to show up with your best clothes on which we've kind of lost in this kind of, you know, post Facebook, we can wear hoodies to work culture. Well, I would say that what you're talking about is not exclusive to Warsaw, uh, but it is true that picture you're talking about um, 
you know, when I was growing up, they didn't have kindergarten. And um, even before kindergarten age, um, we were, a lot of us were involved in this little musical troupe. <laughs> and uh, there's a picture of us. I know everybody in the picture and everyone had on a, not only a coat and tie, but everybody was pretty snazzy looking. Um, and that's just this little small town. And, um, and you're right. Um, I can remember, you know, going to first grade, there were some really poor children, but everybody was dressed up. Everybody, um, all kids had church clothes, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, I think if you look at um, a picture of Yankee Stadium in 1967, everybody's wearing a coat and tie and has a fedora on. Um, also, there's a program here in Richmond called Richmond Remembers on PBS and the Maggie Walker Armstrong football game, all black people, probably uh, 1966 or 67 as well. Every man has on a coat and tie and a fedora. Every woman has on a nice dress and white gloves. Um, so, yeah, and that's kind of the way our world was back then. Um, and I think the reason, I think, is people um, had pride. And you almost had to have pride to be respected um, amongst your peers. There wasn't a welfare state. Um, so, you know you wanted to be respected by your peers. And one of the ways to do that, of course, is to be dressed nicely, not to mention to be polite and honest and all those things. And I think Warsaw had that in spades as, as far as, you know, um, deferential respect to one another, you know, um, regardless of your station in life or your race, you know, everybody was polite and kind and, um, um, you know, another thing that I think about when I think about growing up is, and this would shock a lot of folks, one, it would shock folks the way that people dressed, but uh, we never locked our house. Uh, we would go away to Virginia Beach in the summertime vacation. Our house would be wide open. Um, our, all the keys to your car were in your cars at your house and wherever you parked it. The thought that somebody would steal something just wasn't even in your mind. Um, so yeah, it was a more, more innocent time, I think. And, um, and it shows you kind of, you know, if we did it, then we could kind of return to some of those small town values today. Absolutely. So could you go kind of more into what the culture of Warsaw was like? You know, you talked about the respect you talked about, you know, there's not going to be any kind of stealing which you can use, you, you still can see that. And like, I know Japan is a great example of that today where Singapore, where they just don't want to seal. Well, um, probably the thing I remember most and kind of remember fondly was this idea of, of visiting people. Um, you know, today you're not just going to drop by somebody's house unless you call them or something like that. But back in those days, um, I'll talk about our house first. We lived on a farm and it was an old house built late 1600s. And, um, and people who were your friends would just stop by. Um, and they were always welcome. 
And, um, you know, as a kid, I'd wake up in our house. I would never know who might have spent the night there or who was staying there. Um, everybody was welcome. And um, there are certain families where I, that was reciprocal. Um, the Morrises, we'd go over there and uh, play, play tennis. They lived near the uh, Coca-Cola bottling plant. So they always had like these crates of drinks and Charles chips and stuff like that. And we were just free to walk in the house pretty much anytime we wanted and, and, and help ourselves to whatever was in the fridge. And um, that's kind of the way it was. And, uh, you know, and hunting was like that as well on our property. Uh, you know, my father wouldn't think not to allow folks to hunt on it. Uh, you just kind of did that to your neighbors. Um, so that's kind of one of the more fond memories I have is just, um, I guess you'd call it hospitality. And uh, I remember in Richmond, when I first got married, I was, you know, people who knew me would drop by the house. And, uh, you know, I don't think it was... Um, particularly liked by others, <laughs> but that's kind of the way I grew up. And uh, I will say nowadays, um, I've gotten out of that and um, I value my time more. I've become city-fied, but, um, but I do look back upon that and, uh, and that was a nice thing. So what would be something that you don't miss about small town life? Oh, kind of the loneliness um, in the sense that we, your dad and I, um, your uncles, we all grew up on a farm. We were five miles away from everybody. And, uh, um, you know, the booming town of, of Warsaw was, um, you know, you didn't have a car. <laughs> um, you know, somebody had to drive you there. Uh, now, when I got a little bit older, I could ride my bike into town. But, um but you know, we um, the my bud my buds who lived in town uh, were always hanging out. I mean, they could always find somebody to play with. Uh, we generally had to get a lift there. Um, but um, yeah, and um, but when we did go to town, or when I rode my bike there, we um, it was the same type of thing in the sense that uh, we would play football at Linwood Bowes's house almost every day after school. And either the Bowesses or the Wrights would have us over to dinner. It's just, just natural. Um, and then uh, when football wasn't in, in season, you know, I'd walk over to the Walker's house. They had four boys and, you know, we played baseball. Um, There's kind of always something to do. Unlike today, we could wander away from our house for all day. Um, you know, our parents would just, just let us do it. Um, I can remember um, things that, you know, parents would never let you do today, but in 1977, the Rappahannock froze over. And I mean, froze over. And uh, we, by this time, the walkers had moved to Sharps and uh, we would go out on, on the river and ice skate for miles. No parents, no nothing. You know? <laughs> uh, we had a... Uh, Cat Point Creek uh, uh, rounded around our farm. Rounded, it, it yeah. round around our farm. How's that? 
wound around our farm and um and it was wide it's like a half a mile wide and um you know i was nine years old i'd be up on that creek by myself and i mean nobody's back there for miles and um you know i'd be be fishing or have my shotgun in the canoe um you know nothing uh, no parents would check on you you know no cell phones you know that type of thing so um, also um you know like a lot of small towns but there were some real uh characters um in warsaw and montrose and um you know we had great family relationships with them as well so one of the questions i have is is Warsaw really a sleepy town where nothing much happens or were there any scandals that you can remember? And if there are any scandals, how, how did the town react to it? Well, a scandal in Warsaw would not even be a blip on the radar screen somewhere else. But one of the scandals, which really, if you look back now, it's not a scandal, but um, I was young and dad was a lawyer and um, a number of, we'll call them prominent people, teenagers in Warsaw were in somebody's Volkswagen bus on Taylor Mill Pond Road and they were smoking pot and they were caught by the police. And this is just smoking pot. And it was a big deal. And dad represented a, a number of them. And, you know, they could go to jail for something like that. But um, it was kind of a who's who of Warsaw who, who were there. Um, no big deal now. But, um, but I remember people being very understanding about that. Um, um, and, you know, there was always some innuendo and things like that. Um, but I don't remember people being mean about things. Um, there was uh, an innocence to Warsaw, I think, that when you look back, you know, you kind of get a warm glow. Um, we used to go to St. John's Church, and um, the minister was Dabney Welford, and he lived in a, one of those old baronial uh, homes. He was a direct descendant of King Carter. Savin Hall is still there. Uh, and he and dad were friends and, um, Dabney had a, um, a habit of being a little too verbose, loquacious in his sermons and dad would be sitting in church and he would go like this <laughs> <laughs> and he would, you know, and he would wind it down. And, uh, the other thing I remember, um, there was a lady in Warsaw named Miss Eliza Bland Broken Bro Lamb. And uh, Miss Eliza Bland lived in a pretty old home, uh, mid 19th century home, maybe early 19th century in Warsaw. Um, and there was another lady named Mrs. Hodges. And when we were sitting in church, dad would elbow me sometimes and say, they're having a singing contest. And that uh, he would say, Miss Liza Bland and Miss Hodges would try to outsing one another. So there are a lot of things like that I think about, and they could have been an episode in Mayberry. 
Absolutely. I also think when you think of Mayberry, I can think of every character in Mayberry, there was a Warsaw character just like that. So, <laughs> uh, so anyway, you know, I have uh, very pleasant thoughts of growing up there. Do you, you have like older? When you get older, um, I think you appreciate things like that more. Do you have one memory that you considered the fondest of all from your time in Warsaw? I couldn't repeat that on this podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, uh, God, I don't know. I just, um, one of the things I used, well, here's the story about how, how innocent Warsaw was back in those days. So our friends, the Coggins had this clay tennis court in the back of their yard. And Rebecca was a friend of mine. So um, I would go by her house. I'm like 14 or so. And uh, we would um, hit, hit tennis balls. Um, and her father was the publisher, the editor, the owner of the Northern Neck News. Her mother was this sweet um, Southern lady, Mary. And as soon as I would walk in the yard, Mary would give Marshall a call and say, Robbie's over here playing tennis with Rebecca. Mr. Coggin would come home. Uh, Mary would have like a pitcher of lemonade and cookies. And Mr. Coggin would have like a seersucker suit on and a straw hat. And we'd be volleying back and forth. And they would very politely clap. Oh, great shot. Great shot. Well, I got kind of of cocky one day, uh, Rebecca played tennis in college and I'm going up to the net and I'm returning everything. And then Rebecca, our nickname for her was author Tina after author Ash, but she strokes this backhand about a quarter of an inch above the net and it hits me right in the gonads. Okay. <laughs> and I go down. I mean, it hurt like hell. But, you know, in Warsaw, Virginia, in 1974, you couldn't admit that you had testicles, okay? So <laughs> Mrs. Coggin uh, almost fainted. She got Rebecca to go into the house and, of course, not look my way, because if she looked my way, then it would be some sort of a <laughs> verification that I had to have testicles and uh Mr. Coggin would uh you know he dusted me off made sure I was okay he said son I think you better go on home now but it was so embarrassing for everybody nowadays you know kids in front of their parents would go hey he got hit in the balls but, yeah you know we couldn't do that back then but it was very innocent uh, um but, you know, I can remember uh, we would play kick the can at Rebecca's house when we were 14. I don't know if you've ever played that before. Um, you know, uh, that was co-ed. That was kind of the beginning of co-ed stuff. Um, um, yeah, there was, um, you know, uh, relationships between black and whites. Um before the schools integrated. Um, now, nobody that I know does this now, uh, but when my parents would go 
away. Dad was president of the state bar for a while, which meant he had to travel. We would go stay at uh, black people's houses. Uh, um, I can remember staying over at Daisy and George Canada's and they would take care of us. Uh, so, you know, that was nice. I mean, very pleasant memories of things like that as well. But you would imagine someone maybe from another part of the country, if you told them that was going on in Virginia, they would probably be shocked that and in, in, in Warsaw's own way, they were progressive or ahead of the curve when it just came to, to things like that and just treating people like decent humans. Because you'd imagine the stereotype about anyone down south living in the country would be the opposite of that. Yeah, I just don't think people would understand something like that. But, you know, there were very close, close relationships like that. Um, you know, uh, frankly, most of the people I probably knew up until a certain age were black. Um, and, you know, yeah, they, they helped us out um, with stuff. Um, but, you know, their children would come and play. And, you know, you just didn't, didn't think anything didn't think anything of it. And, uh, and frankly, when I think about those folks today, you know, they are still today with all the people I've met all over the world. I think of them as being the finest folks I've ever known. Uh, So um, there was some other innocent stuff like, you know, pop was a lawyer and um, you know, he would represent folks and a lot of people just couldn't pay. Well, today, I know being a lawyer, uh, you know, a lot of folks I don't charge. I just not going to do it. Um, but back in those and but back in in those days, if dad didn't charge them or if they couldn't pay, they still felt an obligation and they would bring dad, um, you know, like a, a, a bushel of something or another or cans of oysters or, you know, stuff they would grow. And that was kind of, the, I think that kind of a sweet thing. And that's right out of To Kill a Mockingbird with Attica Spech. Yeah, yeah, but you know, um, but um, another thing um, that has struck me and probably um, had me appreciate Warsaw more than I did 30 years ago was um, when Facebook came out and well, when I logged into Facebook, became a member 2007 or so, a lot of folks, you know, I just hadn't seen or some of them I hadn't even thought of much, but you get reconnected and um, you look at what they've done, done with their lives many of which came from very modest means and they're just wonderful people. Um, um, you know, they're the first to say, Hey, I heard your brother's in the hospital. Hope he's doing well. Um, you know, all of them seem in my view to have done something, um, very valuable and worthwhile with their lives. Um, and it's, it's heartening. And I think the reason you see that kind of, I would call it success, is because of the, you know, small town values. Mm -hmm. 
So how would you say your experience in Warsaw would be different from, let's say, your brother's? Uh, well, one, my brothers all went away to boarding school. I did not. So I was there longer. Um, so I probably got in more trouble than they did. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, different ages, I think. My oldest brother, Ken's 11 years older than I am. Um, uh, you know, we all had different um, groups we ran around with. But I will say that's um, something else that I think about Warsaw and growing up in the Northern Neck is that you mixed it up with people of all ages. I noticed my friends who went to say St. Christopher's here in Richmond, they knew their grade. Um, the guys they went from kindergarten up through the 12th grade with, those were their friends. And I think in Warsaw, you had a, uh, a greater age span that you could, you would do things with folks who were younger than you are and who were a number of years older as well. Um, I can remember when I was young, well, a teenager, uh, your brother, who's eight years older than I am, and his friends used to let me hang around with them. And uh, they obviously corrupted me more than I should have been. But that was kind of a natural thing to kind of hang out with people of different ages. That's cool. Yeah. I, did, I did a little bit of that in high school where, you know, we adopted some of the people in like younger grades, but it would never have been as big of a age gap as eight, eight years. Yeah. You know? So um, um, something I'm curious about is kind of, I call it diner culture. You know, uh, the movie Diner, it's one of my favorite movies. And they're diners nowadays, but it's not really going to be the, the same as it was back then, where the diner was almost a pivotal point in the town. So, like, in the 80s, you kind of have the mall replace the diner. But how was, what was it like, I guess, or, like, what were the good hangout spots for you? as you kind of well, became older as a teenager. Did you ever see the movie American Graffiti? Yeah. Yeah. We had the Tasty Freeze in Warsaw. Okay. And uh, that was, um, it was just like American Graffiti. You drive around it and everybody would say, you're breezing the freeze. But you could go there and you would see your friends there. Mm -hmm. And then in neighboring towns, um, they had something like that in Tappahannock, something like that in Montrose. So, you know, you're driving around, and but you could connect with your friends. And uh, CB radios had just come out. And, um, you know, by the time I was driving, you could find out where your friends were, kind of like kids do with a cell phone, to, cell phone today. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that in people's houses. Um, um, you know, I think today, and I've learned this, when people go to a small town like that, they go, oh, there are no restaurants and no bars. You know, what do people do? Well, people uh, form things up themselves. I mean, they have people over to their houses. There are a lot of, of civic type groups mm -hmm. that meet uh, library clubs. It's, um, it's probably more going on there than meets the eye to someone just driving through. Uh, you know, 
I think about the episodes in uh, Mayberry uh, when Andy walks into the drugstore and um, Mrs. Uh, Ellie Walker is there for the first time. She had moved back um, and, um, and it was her dad's drugstore. And Andy buys something and goes to the cash register and pays for it himself and, and gets his change out. And Ellie, who had been in the big, big city for a while, was kind of mystified by it. Well, I saw Dad do that in a number of places. Uh, there was a service station in Warsaw. Happy Barnes was the guy who pumped the gas. And, and Happy was, um, he was a little slow. Um, and Pop was always in a hurry. So Pop would pump his own gas, which he didn't do back in those days. Then he'd walk into the business office, open up the cash cash register, pay for it, and thank Happy on the way out. <laughs> things nobody would do to that. And, uh, and nowadays, you know, there might even be plexiglass or a locked yeah. door preventing you from even getting back. Yeah, I mean, nobody, that. you just never thought that people would steal things, you know? Hmm. Um, so, good memories. Were there any town traditions or family traditions that you wish would come back or miss? Um, the only thing I can think of is there was always something to do by going to somebody's house mm -hmm. and this whole idea of hospitality. Um, you know, I think that's something that you miss these days. And this is a little bit off subject, but um, I think hospitality hospitality was a very much an adhere to rule back then um and i remember dad saying you know maybe the first time i ever flew on a plane by myself or, but he would say wherever you are you're a representative of our family in the commonwealth of virginia so therefore you know you ought to show uh, you ought to have um your best conduct on in all times when you're traveling outside of the area. That's, that's super fascinating that you say that because um, my dad, your brother, he would always wear a blazer when he would be on airplanes. Yeah, and, I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so he would always, you know, so he'd be, so, he wouldn't be, you know, like cocktail party dressed up, but way more dressed up than the rest of the world. And he would always get picked out of line from TSA, either because he's a great person to not be profiling with or because it looks so odd compared to, you know, people showing up essentially. And when I, you know, when I was in Colorado a few months back, half the people were dressed in essentially sleepwear where they had their sleep pants or, I mean, it was rough, but, yeah. um, so it's fascinating to kind of see that both of y'all do that. And it probably comes back to, you know, Grandpa Marston having that kind of lesson that he had instilled in y'all as being representatives of the family and Virginia. So that's very interesting to think about. There was an ethos that, you know, we we're supposed to behave a certain way. And, um, and if we don't do that, we let everybody down. There was kind of this more of a, uh, collective 
we're from this place. We want to be proud of ourselves and put forth a certain image to other people. And um, the flip side of that, uh, not the flip side, but another element of that is I can remember when kids would come to the Northern Neck for the summer. Um, I'm still friends with these folks with um, Fred Hodges today. Um, he was from the big city of Henderson, North Carolina, and his dad was, um, his grandfather lived in Warsaw. And uh, when Fred and his sister, Mary Lloyd, came to town, all the families would make sure they would invite them over and do things with them. Um, I can remember um, my ex-wife uh, got people in uh, Rutherfordton, North Carolina, and uh, which is a great little town, but we would go to the lake down near there and with our children, and they would do the same thing. And, uh, you know, something you, you really appreciate. Um, it's, it's almost like because it's such a small place, and for, I guess for context for people, I think the most recent like data for Warsaw was around 1,800 people. But when you have a population that small, you hear, you know, blah, blah has family in town. And then the whole town kind of going back to Grandpa Marston wanting to represent it, all kind of um, unconsciously, collectively agree that we want to show how great our little place is. We're proud of where we come from. And we want to show these visitors our hospitality, whether it's Southern hospitality or just you know, yeah. we're proud of where and, we are. Uh, you know, I tried to do that with people in Richmond. Um, I can remember when I lived on Monument Avenue, um, you know, there's a family from Scotland who asked me directions once. And I said, well, hop in the car. And I drove them around for four hours. <laughs> I mean, uh, you, you kind of want to show off what you're proud of. And if your people have been in a place for a long time, you certainly had something um, to do with the way it is. And, um, you know, it's natural, I think. But a lot of people don't have those roots today or don't have that obligation or feel that they have that obligation. And I think that's one of the things that was great about a small town. Yeah, you know, um, as I explore and travel around you know, I visited my friend in Boulder, Colorado, and <clears throat> the kind of sad thing about that is almost no one in Boulder is from Boulder. Yeah. So it's almost just like a, you're stopping through, and that definitely does something to the culture, and it definitely does something to how people, you know, if you're not putting down roots, you're almost just there to have fun and then leave. It's not really putting in the foundation you need to, to really make a unique place. It's just happening. The, you don't have the skin in the game like you would. If, like if I moved to a little town in Florida, I wouldn't have the skin in the game. But, you know, when your people have lived in a place for, uh, what is it, nearly 400 years, and you, yeah, and you know who they are, and you can drive around and say, so-and-so lived here, or so-and-so was a vestryman at this church, or so-and-so was a congressman, or blah, blah, blah. You feel as where civilization is had something to do with your people. And, 
you know, it's natural that you want to be proud of that. And, and um, you want other people to think of you at this place as, um, as a hospitable place, you know. I'm, I'm being reminded of that ancient Greek proverb where it's, you know, societies grow great when old men, when men plant trees that they will never enjoy the shade of. And so if you're in a small town and, you know, let's say you're doing a fundraiser for something that you may never see, you're still doing the fundraiser to make sure yeah. it happens and the civic events to make sure it happens or, you know, rebuilding after the tragedy of a, of a civil war, you know, understanding that your culture has, you know, you've, you've been great during the colonial times and before then you've experienced hardship, but you're not throwing in the towel and, you know, just giving up on everything and you know yeah there's a perpetuity to things and uh, you know you you have a stake that you want to see it around and prosper way after you're gone um and you know that's an eastern thing certainly a, a southern thing very much a virginia thing mm -hmm. uh, Another thing I can remember you don't see today too is uh, we always had the uh, honor system at stores like the nabs and the moon pies and things like that. You just open up the lid, take something out, you put the nickel in and the quarter in. And, um, same thing with drink boxes. You would do the same thing, but you know. I will say dad had a different take on that. He said that Uncle Ken taught him how to steal and <laughs> that he got beat <laughs> for that. I remember your dad took a road sign once okay. and, and put it in, in his bedroom. And my old man, hmm, um, he made Brick go back to the state highway department and give the sign back and apologize. So. That's, that's very funny because uh, hypothetically, if I had done something similar, he did not do that to me, but he essentially threatened that he would do that. <laughs> yeah, it came from a source. Okay. Uh, so, but, um, uh, yeah. go ahead. Oh, so something I'm curious about is the relationship you would have with the bay growing up in Warsaw and or with the um, water in general. We had a, uh, a boat, the old blue. And I think it was 38 feet or so. It was uh, Chris Craft, you know, wooden, uh, had a flying bridge. And um, dad kept it at Jenks's Marina. And if you, you can still see the, the boathouse because it was a tall boat. It's the tallest boathouse there, but it's still there. And what dad would do, he had, you know, four or five friends who had boats like that. The Cardins had the Sea Ranger. Arnold Henson had the old B. Uh, Mr. Hales had a boat. And what they would do is they'd get in these big boats and they would drive out into like the middle of the Potomac River and they would rendezvous, which means they would tie up all the boats and they would have a giant cocktail party on Sunday afternoons. Uh, the other thing we would do is, uh, generally in one of these boats, but um, we took the old blue across the Potomac to Maryland. And back in those days, um, 
there was this place called Piney Point, which had legalized gambling. Wow. And uh, it was great for me because, you know, I'd be eight years old and uh, all of dad's friends, they're liquored up and uh, we'd get, we'd get, we would get over there and they would give us money to play the slot machines and they would buy us Shirley Temples. So we could have cocktail drinks just like the old people, okay. uh, which was probably not that great of an idea for uh, setting us up to maybe think of alcohol as, you know, a, um, a rite of passage instead of something that we should be wary of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, we had the Rappahannock near our house. We had the creek that wound back behind our house we kept a boat over on the potomac um, and lots of our friends had boats and things like that so uh, water skiing was something you you did a lot of fishing in the river Uh, a story that i have that nobody believes imagine that but um when i was about 16 well the herring, which were like shads, would run up the rivers in the spring and they would go down these creeks to where it really got narrow and they would spawn. Mm-hmm. And then they would swim back. And um, you could actually shoot them with a pistol. The, the water was so black. And I can remember Skip Weiss and I, we were in my canoe and we went up Cat Point Creek and we went to this little finger and we saw these fish flop up on like a beaver dam. They were, they had spawned and they were, they were coming back. And um, so I dug a little trench in the, um, in the beaver dam and they would swim into that trench and I would grab them with my hand. And we caught 600 fish with our bare hands. And then uh, uh, there's this black lady who, uh, in Warsaw, who was close to our family, Mrs. Saunders. And um, I filled up a couple trash bags and I brought those fish over to her. And she loved me for years because of that. <laughs> right on. Uh, so, you know, close to wildlife, uh, duck hunting, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I wasn't much of a deer hunter and things like that, but a lot of people did that. Um, but you know, you grew up with guns and, and fishing rods for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, were you, were you alive when the dog Butch was around? You know, I don't remember Butch. Um, I remember the, the stories. My dog's name was Moonshine. Okay. And Moonshine was a badass. (laughs) But you know, in the, in the city, you walk dogs, but back in those days on a farm, the dogs live outside. You feed them, but that's it. But, um, yeah, when my children were little, I used to tell them moonshine stories. And, you know, uh, moonshine now is a brain surgeon in Boston. And, uh, but when we were growing up, he could speak seven languages, and he was a... Um, American spy who snuck into the, uh, the Kremlin a few times. And he would, one time he stole a nuclear submarine and he brought it into Newport News. 
anyway, I used to tell my children these stories and um, they'd have friends over like little Katie Carter and Ella and uh, they would go, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, please tell us a moonshine story. <laughs> so I would start to make up a story about parachuting and the Kremlin. And they would go, oh, no, that's not the way it goes, Mr. Smith. <laughs> I, I could remember my lies, but uh, but anyway, Moonshine was a badass dog. So what would, would, um, what would be a real story about Moonshine? Uh, okay, here's one. Uh, on a farm, their dogs are just there, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, sometimes you don't know where they come from, but you, you, you feed them, and before you know it, you know, they're kind of your dog. But well, we had this dog that, that got in heat and Moonshine was a cagey old bastard. And uh, we had this driveway that was really long and you could hear cars from about a mile away. I don't know, down shifting or the mm. gears. And you could tell that car was turning up our driveway. Well, Moonshine would be kind of like Duke on the Beverly Hillbillies, just kind of half asleep with an eye open like that. All of a sudden, he would uh, hear a car, and he'd wake up like that, and then he would go, and he would, right about the time that the car was coming into sight, he would go, and he would mount that dog in heat, and uh, it would be like he was going, hey, look at me, <laughs> but it was all show, you know, but uh, <laughs> anyway, he was a great dog. Uh, he had very high libido, Moonshine did. But the other thing Moonshine would do on a farm, you know, he'd kill a, uh, a groundhog or a rabbit and you'd be on your front steps, you know, and he would bring the rabbit that he kind of was gnawing on like that and drop it right at your feet and kind of like, you know, this is for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, athletic too. Uh, he would also, we, before you got to our driveway, there was farmland and for about a mile, he would run along the side of the car and there were um, barbed wire fences. Moonshine would leap over and keep Jesus Christ. <laughs> Do something. Yeah. So. Well, it sounds like they're probably some, uh, a good line of generations sprung from moonshine hanging around in the Northern neck to this day. It sounds probably like on because he got around. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay so so i have one last question for you so what is one nugget of wisdom that you feel like you gained from living in warsaw um it would have to have something to do with um being respectful of people from different uh, stages of life in that, um, again, when I first, it's probably not that way now, but when I first started going to school, people would be shocked how poor a lot of folks were. And, um, you know, if you knew these people and you went to school with them, you knew that they were pretty smart. Yeah, they might not have had the opportunities that you had, uh, but they were good people and they were bright. Uh, so I think it's, you know, 
not to overlook folks or just to assume something about them, but to really get to know folks before you cast any judgment on Absolutely. And uh, I remember you told me a story about an individual who, you know, worked for his lunch during the lunch period. And, you know, the culture that that's, I think that's really interesting to grow up in a school culture with that, where, you know, you're really seeing people being real people at a really early age. And you're not kind of blinded from some of the stuff that can be sad and can be different from you. So from a young age and in Warsaw, you were well, this particular boy. Um, he was in my Latin class, so he was not. He was a smart kid. You know, not everybody in a school like that is on their way to college. And uh, I mean, he wore clothes with holes in them and pants that were too short. That type of thing. Um, but he was working for his 35 cents lunch every day. Um, that's another thing. I think part of the, the culture, you know, when your father and I and our brothers, when we were 13, we were expected to work in the summertime. And, um, you know, I've been to a number of fancy schools uh, in the U.S. and in England. And um, the best education I ever got was one working with Ken, our oldest brother, when I was 13 or 14, we were driving pilings in the Rappahannock River, working 12 hour days at least. Um, Ken was a tough uh, taskmaster. I can remember if you messed up, he'd hit you. <laughs> But, you know, I, I look back today and I'm glad he did it because, um, you know, I'm not a you know what because of it. Yeah. And then I graduated from that to working at Wood Preservers. And that's really um, probably my advanced Ph.D. degree on everything. Um, I love that job. And, uh, you know, I did work with as a 16 year old. I did real 40 year old man work and i did well and mr wright gave me a crew to be the foreman over and i could work a lot of overtime i could um drive the heavy equipment um and what that taught me was um there's kind of a we had some real shiftless lazy folks there um, but we also had some of the best people in the world there, both black and white. And by the time I got to the University of Virginia, I kind of felt like I'd seen the world. You know, I knew the way the world worked. Mm -hmm. um, and I can remember, um, you know, when the liberal teacher assistant in a history class or a government class proselytizes about something, I would go, no, that's not, that's not right. That's not the way it works. Uh, and I think young people miss that today. And that we had real grown up, real life experiences before we became the age of majority. And I think having that experience helps you filter information that you get in academia. Um, 
and you know and you can put a judgment on it that mm -hmm. these kids today that you know never have gotten their hands dirty never gotten sunburned before and they're just these empty empty vessels that can be controlled and um yeah so that was the best experience i think of my life was working you know in the sawmill and um and uh, i did that for four or five years i did it in college as well so I mean, Thucydides, the Greek historian, when he was describing uh, the Spartan system, he described it as uh, he who graduates the toughest school succeeds. So if you've experienced, you know, a 60, 70 hour work week, if you've experienced, a, you know, a 12 hour day where you go home and you might only sleep six to eight hours because you have other things you got to do to, you know, make your life work, you know, your perspective on things is going to be very different from anyone who has not experienced that you got real well, shit to worry about well wellington said that um the battle of waterloo was won on the playing fields of eaton and hera <laughs> somewhat the same thing uh mm -hmm. but um yeah i mean i can remember um there was a creosote we had a creosote plant and we would cut the railroad ties and they would go into this vault like thing and they come out and you know what creosote is it's that black black gooey stuff on telephone poles and railroad ties well you get that on your arms and the sun would just bake your skin off uh, but we were proud of that we would show it to our friends you know nowadays somebody would run to a plaintiff's lawyer but um oh yeah that would be a uh that'd be like a lawsuit probably yeah the the other thing is we would bag bark. He's you know the bark in the um, in the plastic bags you see at the supermarket and at Lowe's. Yeah. Um, well, we would bag that. And the machine would come, and I would always load the trucks because I wanted to to bulk up. But it was a two man job, and I always insisted to do it myself. So I would grab every piece of every bag. And I'd stack it in a tractor trailer that was uh, 40 feet long. And as I recall, we generally got a thousand bags in there, but it was like 130 degrees in, or 150 or whatever. And those bags had these uh, perforated holes. So the, um, the dust would get in your skin mm -hmm. and, uh, I mean, I would just be totally brown and it was, it would stain your skin. Uh, it didn't really wash out right away. Uh, but that too was a source of pride to show that you are a man, that you worked in the hot sun and your skin got burned. And, you know, um, I just don't think that type of ethos is around today. Yeah. You know, I see the closest I would say in, in my friend group is uh, one of my friends, his brother is a diesel mechanic. So his, he's always covered, his hands are essentially permanently dirty, but you know, there are a lot of people out there who have never experienced anything remotely close to that. Well, I got to tell you, I live in the fan, which for those who don't know what that is, it's a historic district here in, in Richmond. There's a university, a famous art university. And I have to tell you, I see these pasty white kids with these little man buns and pink hair, and I want to tackle them and beat them up. I mean, they just, 
you know, it's it's a it might sound cruel, but it's a a visceral dislike. There's something wrong with that, you know, and um, I can't help it. You know, I wasn't trained to dislike folks like that, but it's just um, I see a lot of that, and it, it turns me off. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you just you just prefer more of a salt of the earth kind of person that, you know, no matter what they think about stuff, there's going to be always a part of them that is just a genuinely kind and hardworking person. And that's probably well, I mean, from your small town experience. Well, weakness and weaknesses in men are not attractive to me. It's um, I think a man ought to strive to be a man and not a woman. Um, and it you know, this social obligation you feel, like we talked about, you're proud of, of where you're from and things like that. Well, there's a social obligation to see civilization advance in a certain way. Yeah. And when men are a, a feminine and um, pasty white and, and don't do any manly things, you know, it offends me. It's not good for the next generation and beyond. Yeah, I, I definitely had an experience recently where dad was behind mom. Mom was had one baby in one hand and was pushing a stroller and then she couldn't get the door and there was no way for her to get the door open. Dad's oblivious on the phone doing God knows what. So he can't even help get the door open for his wife. So I, I see her trying to push the stroller through the door. And so I run you know, 10 feet to get the door for her because A, that's my duty as a man and B, I'm not going to let, you know, a, a child or a woman get hurt because dad's off being dumbass. So, yeah, but it's, it yeah, kind of goes to stuff like that. Though. Yeah, I've, you know, that gets to another thing is that um, these, these things were, I'm sure your dad did this to you, but they're just drilled in your head. When a woman walks in the room, you stand up, um, you pull her chair out. When they get up, you stand up. Um, when before cell phones, when we would have lady guests at our house and I was old enough to drive, dad would always insist that I would follow them home, you know, uh, make sure they got home. All right. Um, uh, holding doors open. You know, it's part of your obligation as a man to do that. And, um, you know, when you see men don't do that, it's you, you want to beat them up. Yeah, it can be it can be very difficult. And then yeah. I would say there's so much pushback against that in the culture where, you know, even paying for something, you know, I see paying as something as, you know, an act of generosity and, you know, me showing, you know, my worth that you know, I can do this without worrying about it. But a lot of women would see that as now I owe you something when it's not that at all, where it's just a, an expression of generosity and an expression of my ability to do so opposed to anything else. But it is kind of weird to see the aspects of what I would call manners that have been instilled in me, whether it's a Southern thing or what, uh, you know, definitely be eroded. Like people who leave their shopping carts out in the parking lot. There are lots yeah. of great examples of it. Yeah, not but, picking up their trash. Um, 
Um, yeah, exactly. And you know, you go to a Starbucks and I see this with the millennial, I don't know what the group is, but you're 35 or a 40 year old and they've got like two, two little kids. They let the kids run around. And, and whenever I see a kid, I brace myself because I'm thinking he's going to knock something over and stuff. And they look at you like, isn't he cute? Instead of smacking his ass so he doesn't do it anymore. And, and another thing, like that too, you see these same folks, they'll walk out in public in their pajamas. Yeah. Um, and they'll let their son do it as well. And, um, you know, first thing a boy should do in the morning is to put his damn pants on. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> It's all good. What maybe we'll have? Maybe we already have our topic for the next podcast. Uh, if we can't get another one of the brothers to come on sometime soon, and maybe well, we'll just talk about the state of masculinity in the twenty first century. <laughs> it's Probably waiting away. Um, well, hopefully, uh, another one of my brothers will be on. Um, I think all three of my other brothers have said they will do this. Yeah. Do we know who's scheduled next? Uh, no, but it sounds like Brick or Walter would probably be the easiest to get okay. on. Well, but, uh, but yeah, I look yeah. And so for everybody watching, you know, I think we're going to get a lot of great stories about small town life. And, you know, we got into some great ones today. You know, I absolutely just love kind of hearing about, you know, what that kind of American graffiti aspect of life back in the day and how the social stuff was so much just smoother and more natural than the kind of robotic stuff we get today where, you know, it's just almost dystopian. So Rob, thank you for all your stories. I'm going to try to put some listening. I'm sorry. I couldn't tell some of the more risque ones, but (laughs) it's all good, but I'm going to get some of the pictures from the websites. uh, And so uh, if you have any cool pictures, definitely send them my way and I'll put them into the video for us. And then that way people can actually see, you know, your class photo and everything. So right on, right on. All right, Stu, you the man. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. See ya.